Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Coming up on this episode of White Wine Question Time. We went to Ibiza. God knows how we got there and God knows how we got back. God knows how we didn't get arrested, I don't know. We got barred from Avis Rent-A-Car for life, I remember that. Um, that was unfortunate. And uh, I remember meeting Andrew Ridgely in Amnesia, I think it was, as well, I can't remember. I'd never been on a dating app or anything before, but I kind of thought, obviously, this makes sense. So I went on, and I was sort of just uploading info and stuff, but when it came to the pictures, I made a mistake, and instead of uploading a photograph of myself, I uploaded a photograph of my friend Johnny in Whitley Bay Library, <laughs> and, um, and then a photograph of a cow in a field, a belted Galloway, my favourite kind of cow, and then a picture of a tube train. I, I do have a stalker, but we've become friends over the years. It's just very nice. Hello and welcome to White Wine Question Time, the podcast that asks its guests three thought-provoking questions over three glasses of wine. And my guest this week is one of the most high-profile gay clergymen in the world, who retired last year as a priest after 22 years, having previously been both a monk and a pop star. He's also a master broadcaster and a number one best-selling author, with a warm ability to distill, well, the most complicated of conversations. For 12 years, millions of us tuned in to hear his measured, soothing tones on Radio 4's morning show Saturday Live until his departure in March. And most recently, he can be heard on his really quite excellent new podcast, The Rabbit Hole Detectives, with Earl Spencer and historian Dr. Kat Jarman. 
In his 20s, he was a pop star, scoring a number one with the Communards, who he joined straight out of a psychiatric hospital following a mental breakdown at the age of 17, full of fury about homophobia and Margaret Thatcher. He swears and admits to having taken lots of recreational drugs, all of which have helped to make him a strangely modernising force in the Church of England. Now 61, he's widowed following the passing of his husband, the Reverend David Olden, in 2019, and having documented his experiences with grief in his book, The Madness of Grief, is newly dating, having joined a dating app. He's also just completed his second number one novel, A Death in the Parish. It's the sequel to A Murder Before Evening Song that follows country vicar Daniel as he solves a spate of murders. I am so looking forward to talking to him. So let's get into it, shall we, and dial him up. It's the Reverend Richard Coles. Hello, Kate. How are you? I'm really well, thank you. Can I get it all right there, Richard? Well, you got most of it right. I mean, my CV sounds so unlikely. I can't remember how much of it is fact and how much is fiction myself now. If it landed (laughs) on my desk, I would assume it the work of a fantasist. (laughs) Do you know, that's a really good point. But how brilliant that that your CV is, is, would even be a stretch in the world of fiction. I know, it seems all... I mean, of course, your life as you live it is just your life, isn't it? You don't really think about it. It's just what happened next, I guess. But if you're uh, you're called upon to sort of explain it or defend it, then you become aware, perhaps, that it's had some unusual twists and turns, those (laughs) moments of decision which you didn't realise at the time were moments of decision, but that maybe changed the course of your life. And I think I've just swerved a bit more than most people. I don't know why ducked and dived even sir you know I mean you are the only (laughs) vicar to have scored a number one book and a number one record so you know there's the bookends right there there's a a vicar who had a number two record and that was Peter Skellen actually Peter was um he was he was an ordained priest on his deathbed actually but he did have a number two hit would you remember with you're a lady a long time ago yeah, yeah. So Peter had a number two, but I think I'm in with a number one, so we never know what Robbie Williams will do next, right? <laughs> There's plenty of time. Actually, he has been ordained. I know, not sorry. No, yes, that's correct, isn't it? When you can you can marry somebody. Uh, well, you, that means you're an officiant. You can be an officiant. To be that's being it. ordained is you have to be ordained in it. Yeah. I tell you what, I've been enjoying Richard, the rabbit hole detectives. I'm you've, very glad you've, to you've hear that. You brought me to a world of history and trivia that I never knew I needed, but evidently do. Oh, well, that's great, Kate, because we love doing it. Um, for those who don't know it, it's a podcast, which is me, and then the historian Charles Spencer and the archaeologist Kat Jarman, and they know what they're talking about. I'm just, I describe myself as a pond skater on the meniscus of culture basically just talking. Um, Each week we set each other a topic, a a historical theme or a person or a thing, and then we each get one and then we try to explain it as best we can to the other two. And then we immediately start rambling into the anecdotage that comes with age and we have a lovely time doing it. It's great. Do you know what? It's fascinating. Uh, So far I've listened to you explore the origins of the paperclip, time zones, who knew that China only has one, Seems yeah. in, seems inconceivable. Uh, we've had the history of RRP, which is the correct pronounced Queen's or King's English, as it would be now. Eggs and um, white dog poo. Yeah. 
Well, you see, all is grist to the mill. Well, not the white dog, but grist to the mill is perhaps an unfortunate metaphor. But do you know what I mean? <laughs> I think like, like, like Charles and Kat and I, we met because Kat was doing an archaeological dig at Charles's um, place in Northamptonshire, digging up a Roman villa. And then we would just meet for supper in the evening, and I was a neighbour of Charles's, and we just talked. And um, Were you his I vicar, mean, was, Richard? No, I wasn't. I, I was I was a neighbour, but not quite that near. So I met Charles actually through the county thing because I was chaplain to the High Sheriff of Northamptonshire, um, which basically meant I had to sort of hang out with like the chain gang, as they're known, to Lord Lieutenant and the mayors and all that sort of thing. And um, some of those dudes were sometimes quite well, not you know, perhaps not the most fun you ever had in an evening. And Charles and I just kind of fell on each other, and immediately <laughs> made friends. And there was an awkward one when. Because I was chaplain to the High Sheriff of Northamptonshire, my job, only job actually, was to pronounce the Amen at the end of a death sentence pronounced at the Northampton Assizes. So not a lot of call for that. But there was a big procession. And I had to have a tricorn hat for that by tradition. But I didn't have a tricorn hat, so I borrowed one from the Panto. Um, and David, my late husband, he unpicked the skull and crossbones from the front. It's not a, not a good look on a vicar. But unfortunately, on the photographs, <laughs> you can see quite clearly the outline of the, of the skull and crossbones <laughs> on the tricorn hat. So anyway, Charles and I sort of met then and we just became really good friends. And then, um, and then when David was ill, Charles and Karen, his wife, were incredibly kind and generous. And then when David died, um, they took me in, which was incredibly nice of them. And sort of, okay. I was, there was a bit of press interest, which was a very sort of intrusive and unwelcome. And so they just really just... Uh, gave me a safe space to be and they were they've just been lovely and, and we've been friends ever since so they gave you refuge at Althorpe yeah and, the, and of course the great thing not only if you're looking for refuge one of the great stately homes of England is kind of a fun place to have that refuge um but it but also there's a especially a when wall. it's owned by your friend who shares a history um enthusiasm with you so I mean you two could you two do riff endlessly um, and it's almost kind of you know a bit of willy waving with your trivia and facts and but you love it don't you there's a there's um, a genuine kind of fire in the belly of both of you well yeah and we are a little bit competitive it has to be said I mean I'm not really competitive I just pretend to be competitive so Charles doesn't feel entirely isolated in his own egomania <laughs> if that you'll believe anything and Kat is the grown up in the room who sometimes just sort of calms us down a bit but we, we can't help being a little bit competitive I think but the thing with Charles is that he's not only good at history I mean he inhabits history his family his house um, has been around for a long time and done lots of interesting and spectacular things. And so whenever I'm sort of airily pronouncing on somebody like, oh, I don't know, Mary of Tech, he says, oh, yes, yeah, she's a good friend of my Auntie Janet. And, you know. <laughs> my Auntie Janet. And um, talk to me about the second uh, edition of what I assume will be a series of books, A Death in the Parish, because we, you must have been slightly nervous when you put the first book out. Um and yet you had such phenomenal reviews, Richard, and it went straight to number one. Yeah, I mean, it was terrifying, partly because I've never done anything like this before. It's my first attempt at fiction, partly because everything mm. I do, whenever I put it out, I just assume I'm going to be exposed finally as the obvious fraud that I am and maybe kind of tried in some court and sentenced to, I don't know, transportation or something. So I always think that. So it was nice that that didn't happen. But then it did, lots of readers did connect with it and, and liked it, and I read... Um, 
I read there were some very nice reviews. A couple of not very nice reviews, but I ignored them obviously and just read the nice ones. Um, but then you have the problem, don't you, of the of the, the the second one, the difficult second album, although the literary equivalent of that. But actually, I was, it is. I was, I've I've always had in mind a sequence, so I, I know where I'm going with it, and um, it was lovely. I, I really enjoyed writing the second one. I'm writing the third one at the moment. I'm really enjoying that too. So you're past the difficult second album. And, and do you know what? I can smell an ITV nine o'clock Sunday night drama in this. Probably oh. with the vicar play, but I don't know, Graham Norton in his first straight acting role. Well, the interview say that, uh, partly because there is now a script, actually. So it's been, there's film, TV rights have been done and there is a script. And it's a really? wonderful script. Yeah. And uh, wow. I've always had in mind the actor I would like to play Daniel, the main character, rector of Champton, Daniel Clement. Um, but I never said anything because obviously you don't want to jinx it. And then the bloke who adapted it, who did a, actually his version much better than mine, I have to say, um, at the end of it, he said, you know, there's only one person who can play this part, don't you? And I said, who? And he said the same name. So I think with a bit of luck, we might be able to have a conversation with that particular person, but I can't say who. Don't know yet. Oh, but it's not Graham Norton. I can't say anything about it, I'm afraid. Ah. Do you know what's interesting? We had Adam Kay on recently. Oh. And obviously he his book was not a work of fiction. It was his story as, uh, of his time in the wards as, as, as a junior doctor. He obviously was played by Ben Whishaw, who went on to win a BAFTA for his portrayal of him. Well, I mean, Ben Whishaw is actually one of my favourite actors and uh, I'm a huge admirer of him. But one of the best Hamlets I've ever seen, actually, was Ben Wisher. I don't, I don't know him at all, but I think he's terrific. But he wouldn't be right in this part, I don't think. Funnily enough, I was an advisor on no. The Crown, and there was a character on The Crown who I knew very well in real life and who I sort of gave some hints about. And then they said, do you imagine anyone playing him? And I said, actually, Ben Wisher, but they cast somebody else in the role in the end. You were an advisor on The Crown? Well, advisor is too grand a word. I just uh, was spent a day talking to someone about this particular character who was one of the characters on the ground, who I knew well in real life, is no longer alive, actually. And, um, and it was fascinating. I enjoyed that. Don't you have an interesting work life, Richard? I know that it's only in the last year that you've stepped away from the day job where you were you know, quite, quite seriously involved in uh, helping the community at large as a vicar for 22 years. But... In amongst all of that, you still manage to do so much else. Your appetite for life is voracious. Well, yeah, I mean, I think partly that sort of FOMO, I think, I've always had that, partly because I'm extremely nosy and, uh, and I've always sort of, I've never managed to quench that entirely. But I think also because I've spent quite a lot of my life on my own, actually, and I think that makes you able to move quickly. So I've moved quickly and I've not really often sort of formed relationships with other people that have kept me, that have made it difficult for me to do that until, I mean, I didn't meet David till I was in my 40s and now I'm with Dickie and I'm in my 60s. And for the first time in my life, I'm kind of having to get used to the idea that I must live my life around somebody else's needs rather than just what I fancy doing next, if you see what I mean. So that's a good discipline. Really. Yeah. So Dickie is your new partner um, who you met quite recently, I believe. Is that right? Yeah, six months, oh, well, just over six months ago, yeah. So we're six months, but six months at 60 in dating, it's like dog years. It's like yeah. five years. You see what I mean? Because what are we going to do? We're not, we're not exactly playing the field. So we, we met on a, on a date. Well, take our time go. and see how it goes. 
Well, it, well, exactly. And also the thing is, he's an actor and he's got a very busy life. And so you have to sort of plan your life and you realise you have to plan your life in advance of where you would comfortably predict that you will have this joint future. But, but it was pretty obvious as soon as we met that we, both of us were quite very happy to be together. So it's working out really nicely, actually. It would be nice to see him a bit more often, but we're working on that. Do you live near each other? Uh, well, he lives uh, he lives on the south coast as I do, but he lives about two hours away from me. Oh. But actually, we tend to hook up. We've just because I've been on book tour and he's been he's been in a play in Chichester, so we just sort of it's a bit like international diplomacy. We meet in a hotel lobby somewhere in wherever it might be <laughs> and get a night together or a couple of nights together, and then he goes off to where he's going off to, and I'm going off to where I'm going off to. That sounds quite. That sounds quite nice, actually. It is nice. And also, we're both of an age when a night in on our own is never a problem, you know? Because I, yeah. I have this sense that Absolutely. I mean, both, the, both the significant others in my life have not been football fans. So this has been a bit of an issue. So with David, he got very impatient with my the fondness for watching the football. And um, we had to do a sort of deal. So he got two ugly betties for every match of the day and so on. <laughs> um, and, and Dickie is trying quite hard now. To, so, so I, I watched for just starting him off on the sort of milk diet, which is highlights on Match of the Day. And, you know, he's, <laughs> he's an actor. He's interested in the body in space, you know. He's interested in all that stuff. And he's a, he's a curious person. But I did realise that perhaps I had some way to go when he said to me, is Arsenal Spurs? <laughs> How very disappointing. Well, actually... <laughs> Just when you think you started to oil the wheels of his interest. <laughs> well, well, he is, he is he's, he's sort of getting it, I think. But, you know, I, I don't... I like the idea that he likes he th his things and I like my things. And he's very good at gardening, which I'm absolutely rubbish at. Um, complimentary gifts, I hope. Absolutely. Well, good luck with, with whatever comes next. Um, we had Prue Leith on recently who explained what falling in love at 70 felt like. So she was a, a wow. little ahead of you. Um, and she said it was just like falling in love at 17 all over again. So yeah, it is. you just move really slower, is. but the feelings are all the same. I realised with Dickie when I was about our third date or something, I realised I saw his face in the crowd and my heart went pitter-pat. I thought, oh... Oh, I remember this. And, you know, that's lovely. That's, oh, well, congratulations. I bet you're glad you, you logged on and swiped left or right, whatever it is that you have to do. Well, to it was a bit of a saga, actually, Kate. So I'd never internet, I'd never been on a dating app or anything before, but I kind of thought, obviously, this makes sense. So I went on. And I was sort of just uploading info and stuff. But when it came to the pictures, I made a mistake. And instead of uploading a photograph of myself, I uploaded a photograph of my friend Johnny in Whitley Bay Library. And, um, and then a photograph of a cow in a field, a belted Galloway, my favourite kind of cow. And then a picture of a tube train. And... Um, I just did it. I don't know what, how I did that, but I did that. And so when Dickie saw it, I think he thought I was rather being brilliantly ironic or something, and um, and he got in touch. Or catfishing. Well, you know, I don't know how this bloody thing works, but um, but the minute we got we got we connected, it was um, it was it was really lovely. Actually, I love that. Is Arsenal Spurs? <laughs> oh, brilliant. 
Um, are you ready for your first question? Oh, yes. You noted recently that being a vicar is like having a padlock on your lips. And now that you're retired from both the pulpit and the BBC, uh, you're free to be more honest and more direct and pretty much say whatever you like. So have you found yourself feeling liberated with a giddy sense of relief of no longer having to be censored or filtered? There's something in that, yeah. I mean, there is. it's not so much a padlock, it's more a sort of a filter, if you see what I mean, because you know as someone who has to uphold an institution that there's a certain discipline that comes with that. You're ob- you have obligations to other people, obviously. I think that can sometimes be quite frustrating, and after a while it can begin to chafe a bit, and I was beginning to feel that, especially where there were certain issues I wanted to speak about more openly and felt I couldn't because of those disciplines. So when I stepped away from those formal roles, I did I did speak a bit more freely, and what I discovered that actually there was perhaps more feeling behind it than I'd expected, and I was quite angry actually for a while. I don't like being angry at all, and I usually regret anything I do in anger. But there, there was quite, and that sort of took a while to to sort of process. I hope I've got rid of most of that now, um, but it's. Um, I think anyone who's anyone who's worked for a, any organisation, especially a sort of big, venerable institution or a national institution like the BBC or like the C of E, will. will I was talking to somebody the other day who was a soldier, and he he actually found the sort of disciplines of that too to be quite similarly quite frustrating sometimes. But there's a you know, there's a good thing about it. I, I believe in the institutions, and I want the BBC to be there, and I want the C of E to be there, and you sort of realise that you can't just do that on feeling good about stuff. You have to actually do the necessary um, things to make sure the institution is solid and enduring. And that means putting your own stuff to one side for a while and thinking about... I thought about it... I remember I went to see uh, I know this bloke called Tom Denny who makes stained glass, wonderful, wonderful stained glass maker. And they were installing a stained glass window in a church near me and I went to watch. And he does this most beautiful, beautiful work and it... The sun pours through it and it just glitters and it casts these lovely pools of light. It's so beautiful, his work. But you realise it only works because of the frame. That it's the mullions and the transoms and the leads that hold it in place that make it work. And I realise that, you know, any institution, you have to be that as well. And, of course, I don't have to be that right now. So perhaps I have been mouthing off more than I normally would. But that's where I am right now. And it's I think not mouthing probably... off, though, is it? Because you're you're not you're never in without consideration in terms of what you're saying, and I and I absolutely agree with you. You you're so right. We we all need framework and boundaries. Society is that, isn't it? You know, polite society is that. Yeah. But equally, functional society. Yeah. But if you're going to move things on, you have to have difficult conversations. And as a community leader and a broadcaster, that is your job too. Yeah, I mean, I'm okay with having difficult conversations because you can do it with a certain detachment if you're in role. So as a vicar, I would often be having difficult conversations with people, but because it was my job. Here's the thing. My brother was a cop, retired now, a detective in the Met. And I remember when he was first a beat bobby in Hackney telling me that it doesn't hurt so much if you're punched on duty. And actually, I found that too, the sort of when you're getting in a sticky situation or violent or abusive situation, if I was on duty, it was my job and I dealt with it. If it was personal, that would be different, I think. So th- there's something about the role. There's something about um, the institutional form that you take that protects you a bit against that. 
Um, but it costs you too, you know. Uh, I think another thing that happens with Vickers quite often is that you become so much the role that you lose parts of yourself which you will mm. lack. You'll note the lack of, and that's... I'm always interested with sort of when Vickers go bad. It was a vicar who he went bad, and he, when his housekeeper, they robbed a bank in, I think it was Devon or Cornwall, but unfortunately she was, she was deaf and kept shouting his name, which wasn't very good because it gave his identity away. And also neither of them drove, so they ordered a taxi for a getaway car and it took them straight to the police station and they were arrested. So I kind of like this idea of a vicar going Is this bad. true? Yeah, I swear. I mean, it was, a, it was a while it's ago, but um, it was told told me by one of the neighbouring vicars of that particular unfortunate clergyman. And if you look at the history, you know what of clergy, drove him to want to break and enter and steal? Well, I think probably he was finding it hard to make the stipend stretch. I don't know. And there's this bit I think you often get it in in vicars when they hit their fifties or their sixties: a buttoned up life, a life of sacrifice, a life of chosen hardship mm. for many. Sometimes you just think. When I was a boy, the vicar in the village where my parents lived, he he fell out of love with humanity. And that often happens to vicars too, because you just see too much of it at its worst. But he he only liked goats, so he kept goats in the churchyard. And eventually the goats moved into the vicarage, and um, you would see a sort of head at the door, but actually it was a goat and not a clergyman. So he, he, I think he took early retirement in the end. Do you think there is an art in um, stepping out at the right time in a role like that and not taking it to the grave so that you can try to find who you are beyond the dog collar? Well, you have to, I think, because it'll really do you some damage if you don't. It's a bit like fame, Kate. I was thinking about this the other day, about how, you know, if you are famous or well-known, there's a version of you that goes out into the world and people respond to that and they may applaud and think you're marvellous, but that'll come back, that version of you, and you will meet it, and all of a sudden you will see you've become unrecognisable because it's it's just not you, it's, it's this kind of uh, version of you. You need to be the person who fucks up and who falls over and who offends people and who gets it wrong and you need to have room to do that and if you're mindful only of your own PR or something then you'll never do that and I think and I can think of some examples not not in fairly recent times of people who obviously have sort of lost themselves in that and then something happens in their life and they realize they have no resources to deal with it and I don't want to be that person. Well, you've kind of been there as well, haven't you? I mean, by the time you were 18, you'd already had a very difficult time with your own mental health and you'd had to rebuild. And you've constantly, across your working life, reinvented. And quite often at difficult junctures. You know, from pop star to monk to to vicar. I mean, you've you've done to novelist to part-time amateur drum, uh, amateur strictly dancer you've, you've done quite a lot yes I suppose so and I, I, what's that about I think maybe there's I always love that program that cartoon Mr Ben do you remember it when he goes yeah, to the fancy dress shop reinvent. And yeah and I thought the part of me is Mr Ben I want to go to the sort of shop of curiosities and uh, come out in a suit of armor and try that and then come out I don't know in a dragon thing and do that. I, I don't know what's that about. Perhaps it's a sort of trying to find an authentic version of the self. I really don't know. I also, I kind of, I have passionate interest. When I was young, I was such the nerdy kid. I used to have these sort of passionate interests in things. And when you're young and you can 
just soak things up and become consumed with interest. So one of my obsessions was Sherlock Holmes, actually. It was the first proper book I ever was given. My grandfather gave it to me, the complete Sherlock Holmes short stories. And we were actually speaking in Independent Bookshops Week, and it was from an independent bookshop, the Oundle Bookshop in Northamptonshire, still going strong, that, that I got that book. And it changed my life because I was just captivated by this mysterious figure of Sherlock Holmes, who was kind of a bit unsettling and a bit ambiguous and he lived on the edge of things and his relationships were awkward but he could look at something that seemed entirely innocuous to most people and read in it the signs that will tell you what was really going on fascinating i made my parents buy me a deer stalker when i was 10 and a magnifying glass and i used to walk around kettering <laughs> in the deer store obviously being beaten up all the time by every other child um, but I was sort of obsessed with it and perhaps not such a surprise that I should end up writing crime fiction. Do you know, you're the second person to, to cite that as a book that was hugely informative. The other is Giles Brandreth, who grew up on Baker Street uh, as oh. a child and his bedroom looked into what he believed then was Sherlock Holmes' original base and he was just lost in, in and transfixed by all that Sherlock Holmes did. Well, I, I think of myself as the poor man's Giles Brandreth. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you should. <laughs> Do you know what? We did, a, we did a, a book signing. We both had a book out at the same time. We were at Hatchard's, that lovely bookseller in Piccadilly, and we were put on neighbouring desks, and literally the stairs were crammed with people wanting Giles to sign his book, and there was, like, my stalker and my mum, basically, at mine. And that was it. <laughs> but he was very gracious about it, and he's, I like Giles very much. He's good company. Did you have a stalker, Richard? I, I do have a stalker, but we've become friends over the years. She's very nice. Oh, right, OK. That's disarming. Well, it happened to a friend of mine uh, who's a... I can't say who, but is a, a famous pop star. He had a stalker, has a stalker. And she would sit outside his house sort of looking at his windows all day and all night. And so he used to take her a tray with some sandwiches and a cup of tea, you know, see she was OK. And they sort of had this quite, ended up having quite a friendly relationship. They'd have the cup of tea and a chat. And then he'd go, well, I'd better go in. And she goes, well, I'll just carry on stalking you if that's all right. He'd go, yeah, sure, fine. Um, see, <laughs> see you later. I mean, I don't want to minimise it. Obviously, stalking can be completely horrible. But there is a sort of mild version of stalking that I think I get where you end up sort of just becoming quite friendly with your... Stalker's too strong a word, isn't it? More fanaticism than stalking. Well, and obviously you have previous experience. You've got the pop star circuit that you've travelled. Well, I was kind of, you know, I had the sort of mixed blessing. I mean, it was a great blessing, but it was a mixed blessing of being the one who wasn't very good at it. So, you know, I stood next to Jimmy Somerville, one of the most spectacularly talented artists of, of his time. Really amazing person. And that was very lucky for me because no one was going to play to him. He played the piano, I don't think. But with Jimmy, it was we were it was just great and so intoxicating and exciting to work with him. But it was also a bit difficult because everyone was fascinated by him and not really interested in me. And my ego found that quite difficult to deal with then. Um, now, of course, I realise that in a way I got a sort of well, if not a better deal, I certainly got a reasonably good deal because I'm allowed to be another person, do other things. Whereas for Jimmy, because Absolutely. he was so well known and so associated with that role, I think, you know, he will always be that person. Um, totally. Much better to be Andrew Ridgely than George Michael in this instance, Richard. 
Well, well, yes, yeah. I mean, uh, I think those relationships are always a kind of interesting, aren't they? Um, mm. Quite tricky, actually. And also, if you're young and ambitious, and no one gets to do that without being young and ambitious, um, you know, your ego can be a bit of a monster, really. And if somebody else's ego is also being monstrous around you, it can get a bit bumpy. We had the most tremendous rows. And Jimmy, you know, Jimmy grew up in a very tough tough, working-class, hard-drinking, sectarian, Glaswegian background. And I grew up in, as a public school boy, in a shire county of England. And Dressed as Sherlock Holmes. Well, well, dressed as Sherlock Holmes. And so when I I sort of first came to London, ran away to London, when anyone had an argument, I thought it was the end of the world because we just didn't do that. And, of course, Jimmy grew up in a world where... Shouting and fighting was a big part of it, actually. So I didn't really know how to deal with it when we when we disagreed. Uh, most of the time, our differences were kind of creative and fun. But when when we were at odds about something, it was really difficult because he only really did nuclear war, and I didn't even have conventional <laughs> battlefield weapons. So we didn't. We were very bad at arguing. Or very good if if if. Uh if what you're saying is to be true, because it sounds like you kept going back for more till you learnt how to successfully argue with one another. Or not, as well, the case not, may be, because actually, I, mean, I suppose you fell yeah, apart, didn't I mean, you? I, I, think you, I think I kind of learnt different arts, really. And one of the things I've always most admired about Jimmy and respected about Jimmy is that he was very much his own man and knew his own mind and he would take a view and he would stick with it. And I think I'm... I'm a bit more unsure of myself and I kind of think this and I think that and um, and sometimes I wish I'd been a bit more resolute in sticking up for what I thought and I wish, one of the things I most respect about Jimmy is his, his bravery and his boldness. Yeah, but equally, Richard, you're a man that's constantly re-evaluating his views and listening to those of others and there's also huge value in that too. We need thinkers like you as well as those who are resolute in their views, just like Jimmy. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack 
for free shipping and 365 day returns. Are you ready for your next question? Yes. You sailed the selection uh, process to become a priest, but were phoned um, afterwards by the Church of England's chief medical officer, who was somewhat alarmed by the list of non-prescription drugs that you'd admitted to taking. And he only knew the pharmaceutical names for the drugs, and you only really knew the ones that were used on the street. So you've said since it was a long conversation. And I just love the idea of your old world and new world colliding. I just wondered, A, what was the outcome of that conversation and when else has old and new come together to find a way to become sort of, you know, compatible bedfellows and exist harmoniously alongside one another? Well, the conversation with the chief medical is he phoned me at work. I was at the BBC at the time. Unfortunately, in those days, we had offices and you could close your door. So I did close the door and had this long conversation with him. And he was saying things like MDMA. And I was going to say ecstasy, I can't remember. Uh, but my, my, my kind of drug-taking days... Well, they weren't entirely, but I mean, now it's ibuprofen for joint pain, you know, that kind of thing. But in those days, it was recreational drugs. And, you know, I was a pop star in the 1980s. It would have been rude not to. So I did. And I and I loved, I was nothing like more than staying up all weekend and having a whale of a time and going to a rave. We went to Ibiza. God knows how we got there and God knows how we got back. God knows how we didn't get arrested. I don't know. But we had a smashing time. Um, but, did but you, you know, that was... How long did you go to Ibiza for, Richard? It was quite a length, wasn't it? It was most of the summer, as I recall. I don't think we were meant to be there that long, but time flew by. We got barred from Avis Rent-A-Car for life, I remember that. Um, that was unfortunate. And uh, I remember meeting Andrew Ridgely <laughs> in Amnesia, I think it was, as well, I can't remember. But, um, but we just had a, a whale of a time. And, of course, I was a pop star and I had... You know, I was kind of coming out of being a pop star, actually. So I had resources and I had the time and the energy and the youth to really go for it. And I suppose I... And the license, I suppose. You are a pop star in Ibiza, you know. Yeah. I mean, it was rather good. But I mean, I was so, so kind of off my face all the time. I don't really, I didn't really make the most of it, I don't think. But I, I did have a lovely time. And I made some friends there. I mean, I made really couple of friendships that have been among the most enduring of my life with people who I don't think I would I mean one of the one of my closest friends who I love very much who I met in that period is a, is a he's a postman in East Grinstead and I I don't think I would have necessarily met him under any other circumstances but we did meet and we've just Where did the you meet? Uh, we met in um, Soundshaft which was a club in Charing Cross in London, one of the early sort of <laughs> ravey house clubs. So we met there and um, and we just immediately hit it off and we became very close friends, me and his girlfriend. And we just we just remained friends ever since. And I, 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 I just adore him, but also he just, his world is not my world and he thinks differently about things. And he goes on at me all the time. He thinks I'm a terrible disgrace now in my 60s and that he calls me Tory. He says, you're a Tory. I said, I'm not a Tory. He says, you're a Tory. I said, Billy, I'm not a Tory. I'm not a Tory. I'm Labour. I've always been Labour. He goes, you're a Tory. And he says, you walk like a Tory, talk like a Tory, you think like a Tory, half your friends are Tories, you're a Tory. And so we have this big row at the moment. He say, I'm not a Tory. I'm really, really not a Tory. 
but he's another person, a bit like Jimmy. Perhaps that's why I like him so much, is that he has always very much known his own mind and pursued his own, his own thing. And he's just great. I love him. So that, that, your old world taught you so much about the people that you then went on to help in your new world, right? Without those lost nights on the dance floors of Ibiza, would you have been as well-equipped to understand humility, forgiveness, second chances? Well, I don't terms. know about that. I mean, there, I mean some, there's two schools of thought about this. Some people think that it's good for ordained people to have had a life before, you know, in some mm. other line of work or with sort of experience of life. Some people think actually that you more effectively the ones who kind of are lifers who do it you know from the, the word go and you know you could argue that I think I know what it's like to crash and burn and I think that's been very useful to me in my ministry especially prison ministry and that you know if we're dealing with people who've had a yeah. tough tough time in life and with um, around issues around homelessness for example and uh, substance abuse I think I can level with people like that because I've sort of been there and I know what that's like and I think they know that too and that's been good. I don't know how effective I've been in that, but I've never felt frightened of people like that or repelled by people like that. I feel very kind of, I feel a great empathy, I think, with, with people like I hope I do. Yeah, and no judgment. No, God, no. I mean, there, there, there is, you do have to make judgments about things. You have to make judgments about whether something is sensible or not sensible. You have to make a judgment about what your obligations are to other people. But your judgment must be as merciful and as circumspect as the judgment you would want to be judged by, if you see what I mean. So yeah. I think one of the things that I've felt been most moved by in my ministry is when I've had a chance to get to know people who have either behaved in ways or been perceived as behaving in ways which put them beyond the margins of everyone's concern. Behaviour so bad, so shocking, so um, difficult to, to conceive that they've had to live in exile beyond our uh, capacity of sympathy or imaginative engagement. And I've, I've spent quite a lot of time with people who live like that and I find that deeply... Um, we're not fascinating, that's the right word. I feel it's really important to connect with people like that. It's really important that you that you go and seek them where they are and remind them if they needed reminding and reminding everybody else too that we are alike in dignity, you know. We're all created in the image of God and we all mess it up in one way or another, but but God wants that to be restored. And And I just hope I would be someone who looked like I believed that, you know. I carried some conviction of that in my conversations and my relationship with people. Do you continue to go and um, see people in your community as somebody that can, as a helper, as a professional helper? And do you still go into prisons to do that kind of work? Well, I'm in a weird moment. So having stepped down from official, you know, duties mm. in the church, um, I... To resume duties, as, a, as a, and I'm interested in prison chaplaincy, and I've been talking to some people about that, but I do need to have my credentials um, re-stamped, if you see what I mean. And yeah. there's a problem with that, in that at the moment the rules for the clergy in the Church of England is that we, if we are involved in a same-sex relationship, then we have to uh, abide by those rules, and that means having a conversation with the bishop. And I realise that I don't want to have that conversation. Um, I'm 61 I find it humiliating. I'm not talking about something that is a shameful secret that I do behind the bike sheds. I'm a grown-up and I'm having a grown-up relationship with somebody and I'm not going to 
humiliate myself or indeed the bishop by submitting to that sort of humiliation. It's not going to happen. I'm not prepared to do it. So that's a bit of a problem at the moment. And you know, things are on the move a bit in the Church of England, and I hope we'll have some sort of res- resolution about that. I do help out in an emergency, obviously, if something... You're quite is... right. That is ridiculous that you would be expected to do that in order to carry on doing the work that you are so good and so experienced at doing. And I, I guess that's where some of your anger sits around with the church because as much as things are changing, quickly enough, really, they're certainly not keeping up with the uh, the rhythm of society at a, at a wider scale, are they? Yeah, I mean... It's a real argument, and within the church, you will find people of integrity and good faith on both sides of that argument who aren't going, who aren't able to find some sort of compromise, um, which would give us a way forward. I mean, there's a bit of movement around that at the moment, but it's a long way off yet. And I think I've two things. One, I started having those arguments when I was 15 years old, and I think I worked out my position when I was 16 years old, and I just don't want to be having that same argument now. And the other thing, Kate, is you need to put on armour if you get into a fight to be a warrior, yeah. right? And if you do that, it's yeah. a great thing to do, but it also affects you, and I don't want to... I want to take the armour off. I want to be a bit more vulnerable. I want to be a bit more exploratory, a bit more tentative. I don't want to be a polemicist. I don't particularly want to be an activist. I want to be open to you know the surprise of mystery and paradox nuance you know and that's not great you can't really do that in armor i don't think no you can't and why not you've absolutely earned the right to do all of that and then some but i do the padlock's off isn't it yeah, I, I do. I miss being a vicar very much. I love being part of the life of the community. It makes me feel quite emotional to think about it, actually. Gosh. I, I, I miss that. I miss being involved in the life of you know, the kids in the school and their mums and their dads and their grandparents. So I do miss that. Um, but I also knew I had to sort of step away from it and try to find a... A new life. And part of that new life is sort of doing what I've always been doing, I think, but I'm just doing it without official sanction in a way or wearing mad clothes on hot days, which is great. This time of year is <laughs> end of June, beginning of July, because all the ordinations happen now where you get the most dressed up you'll ever be. And I just don't want to, I don't want to waltz around in a chassis ball in 30 degrees of heat. Thank you. No, quite right. I think you've done your time. <laughs> um, it takes me very nicely to my third and final question. What we were just talking about there is helping hands. And you have been a professional hand holder, a giver of a helping hand in your capacity as a vicar, previous to that as, as a monk. But who've extended you a helping hand across the years? Who have been the people that you've reached out to that have helped you up? Lorna, she was my, uh, I met her in 1980 in West Hampstead Tube Station in Russia, which she was holding up an entire queue by trying to pay for a ticket with coppers from her purse. And everyone was really horrible to her, actually, and I gave her 20p. And anyway, she got a ticket. And then we were both living in the same part of London then, in NW6. And, uh, and then we met and became friends. And then I became her flatmate. And then she became my manager 
and Jimmy's manager in the communard and did a fantastic job. And then after that, she saw... I remember her saying to me, the internet is going to be bigger than printing. And I said, don't be stupid. And then she started a tech company and then she sold it for a fortune. And um, she's been my friend all through my life. Go on, Lorna. Go, Lorna. And she lives... I live actually in the same lane as her. So we are now in our 60s, neighbours as well as friends. And... And she's always been someone who has... wonderful! My... Oh, God, yeah, she's great. And she's always had my best interests at heart. And I love her. And uh, she's, she's great. Mm-hmm. I have... I have um, two, two, this is like two buddies who are kind of Martin and Johnny. And Martin is a retired social worker in um, Edinburgh. Ex-Gorbals communist... Fascinating guy, mixed heritage, uh, Glaswegian and, and um, Canadian First Nation too, so Cree as well, long story. Um, and he is, um, he's always called Dance to Me as a Tory too. And then Johnny, who's a teacher in Spain, and he is at the other side of the political divide actually, but he denounces me too also for being a Tory. Um, and, and <laughs> but you're not we, a Tory. We, no, I'm not a Tory. I'm neither of what they claim that I am um, on, on neither grounds. But they are my they're my buddies, and we um, and we've known each other for a very long time, and we we spend time together. And I think it's an interesting thing for sort of gay men. I think of my of my age and background. There's your blood family, and I'm very close to my to my blood family, even though my nephews and nieces think I'm appalling. Um, but you also have your elective family, and it was the people when you ran away to London, or wherever it was, to try to live that Liverpool life. Mm-hmm. They were the people who were your people. And, Chosen. You know, half of them didn't survive because of the HIV-AIDS crisis too. And I think that probably made us even even closer. So I, I rely on them. And, and then I've got kind of... Friends of more recent vintage. I mean, Charles Spencer, we've become really close. And I didn't see that coming. It just, I don't know why, we just we just did. I've got a new best friend as well, who I only met two weeks ago, who I adore, who's called Evan Rogerster, who is a conductor and orchestras, not buses. And um, he's conducting at Glyndebourne, <laughs> which is not very far from where I live. And he's doing Don Giovanni there at the moment. And we met at a do. Uh, a couple of weeks ago and immediately hit it off. And then I announced on Twitter that he was now my new best friend. I didn't check with him first, but he said that was okay. And so Evan and I are um, sort of having lots of fun getting to know each other and me getting to know his family and stuff. It's great that you've got the capacity for new relationships, not just, you know, friendships, but romantically and that you're ending old relationships, your relationship with with your dog collar to begin new friendships, new... I mean, it's just great. It's wonderful to hear, Richard. It really is. I I really hope that I can sustain that in my 60s. Well, I'm sure you can. But um, long way off, Kate. But um, the, the, the best thing, I think, about getting up... The worst thing is orthopaedic and dental and erectile, but let's not go there. Um, the, the best thing... <laughs> There's stuff is you the can qu- get for that. Exactly. We all, we all you know... Um, the, the best thing is quality of relationships, and I find now that I, I'm not, I'm not as ambitious as I used to be. I'm not. I don't really want to be better than someone. I don't want what they've got. I like them to have it. I don't need to have it too. So I sort of delight in. I think one of the interesting things is 
I was never sporty as a child. This will surprise nobody with my dear stalker and my magnifying glass and my thick specs and everything and playing the organ. But I've, lots of my friends I've met now are, are sporty and I really, really love going to see... Our big mates are Neil Back, the rugby international, and uh, I adore <laughs> Neil. And I just love, you know, he's in a different world for me. And I love going to the football. My brother-in-law, Mark, who I love very much, he's a ref. He's also the mascot for Chorley Football Club. He's Victor the Magpie. I think that's supposed to be a secret, but anyway. So they introduced <laughs> me to world, And he's also a motorbike racer. So he introduces me to worlds I don't particularly know about. And I, I love that. And I just think the quality relationships you have... Immaturity is so great, so much fun. I'd love that. Well, um, and, and please fill your boots with as many new ones as you can because I think once you get to this age or stage of life, you start to realise that there's more behind you than there is in front of you. And it does, I don't know, it does sharpen the thinking, doesn't it? It does. And also, I mean, so, so with my buddies, we, we kind of do trips once in a while. And Johnny said this year... Well, we've probably only got 20 of these left. And I thought, what do you mean? I thought, well, yes. He said, you know, we're going to be in 20 years' time. We'll be in our 80s. And I don't know how able we'll be to kind of go and have fun and do things. And all of a sudden, 20 doesn't seem like very much. Because if I think about what was happening 20 years ago, it was last Friday, basically. Uh, It it just goes so quickly. So I want, in whatever time I've got left, is to have... Um, you know, have a lovely time and to spend it with people who I love and care about. And also to try to, I know this sounds so, sounds so banal, doesn't it? But to, I, do, I really like to kind of have a chance to help people who are starting out and to give them the benefit of such experience as I have and encourage people, you know, who could use some encouragement. And do you know what my nephew said? Ollie is 20 now, but when he was a teenager... He kind of realised that I had a past and he said, he calls me Tricky. He said, Uncle Tricky, were you in a band? And I said, yeah, and you were like a real band. Mm. Yeah. And he, he looked me up on YouTube and he kind of <laughs> nodding along. And I thought, that looks good. And I said, what did you think? He said, oh, it's really cool. But even then you can tell there was a vicar struggling to get out. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that's a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll take it. Richard, thank you so much for your time today. I have listened to you, watched you and read you for so many years now. And honestly, it was a thrill to know that today I got to have you to myself for an hour. Um, it's one I'll treasure, so thank you so much. No, thank you. It was lovely talking to you. Thanks for your really thoughtful questions too. I enjoyed it. My huge thanks to the Reverend Richard Coles, who you can catch live on tour later this year with his one-man show called Borderline National Trinket and his latest novel, A Death at the Parish, is available wherever you get your books. And for more amazing confessional conversations, why not head over to our back catalogue where you'll find episodes with the Reverend Kate Botley, Dame Pruleith, uh, Fee Glover and Jane Garvey, Jess Phillips MP, Ken Bruce. We've even got the actor Jason Fleming in there talking about his work trying to help reform prisoners. That's all in our back catalogue and don't forget we've got something from the cellar coming your way landing on your feed on tuesday more vintage cuts from our cellar with more than 200 guests to choose from and of course i'll be back with a brand new episode next friday until then thanks so much for your company
White Wine Question Time is a Stack production and part of the Acast Creator Network. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.